Hello everyone, Joshua Gilliland here, one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks, and with me to discuss The Clone Wars, Old Friends, Not Forgotten, is Stephen Tolefield and Thomas Harper. Gentlemen, how you both doing? I'm still in awe of this episode. I'm mentally still trying to process it, but other than that, I'm hanging in there. Yeah, it was very emotional. I'm still recovering, yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm doing good otherwise. It was cinematic. The opening, this is like their love letter to end the series of from like the Lucasfilm logo, because the episodes don't begin that way, to the cinematic opening without a crawl. So it, it, it does the wartimey recount that shows the setup for Revenge of the Sith. And it would be interesting if this how this smooths out Revenge of the Sith's rough edges. So I'm uh, oddly curious to see how this plays out. Yeah, even the cinematography of it just evoked the feeling of the movies. Like the, the uh, I think the biggest scene was that got it for me was early on when Anakin and Obi-Wan are heading back up to the Star Destroyers in the, uh, uh, in the gunship. And it just sort of does this sweeping pan up to the Star Destroyers in orbit. And it was just... That's pure Star Wars cinema right there. It's perfect. And the emotional resonance too, the the characters, the interactions were so authentic and surprising um, and really, really fun to watch. I was really invested. Well, that and I, I don't mean this as a negative, but the animated Anakin is more lifelike and likable than the live action and that's not the actor's fault it was the story and the director's fault but they've just they do a good job with him uh, of anakin coming across as this really likable sincere balanced individual who gets broken yeah. and it's anakin's interactions with ahsoka you know sincere and uh, it's there's a you know humanity that lacks in the live action. And if you if you think about it, Matt Lanter, the voice actor, has been playing Anakin longer than Hayden Christensen did, and it is Hayden Christensen's birthday today, I think, if not yesterday. So really, we will not talk ill of Hayden, but of course not. No, I yeah. it's uh, it, it's amazing to think about it in in that. A context when you kind of cram together all the hours of of uh, dialogue that he's had as that character. I mean, it's it's just phenomenal. And I, there there are two moments that stood out to me that there was uh, that that kind of mesh right in with Revenge of the Sith. Uh, one being his goodbye with Ahsoka, and now you mirror that to the the goodbye with Anakin, or excuse me, with Obi Wan in Revenge of the Sith in the film. You know, in neither scene do they think remotely that they're not going to see each other again and you get a good luck versus a may the force be with you. Uh, that was just perfect. And then just seeing Anakin, at least in the Clone Wars, uh, having built to this zenith of power. I mean, this Anakin in this episode, and I don't know that we'll see him again uh, for the next three, but 
he's he's at his apex right he's right before this is right before the moment where he stands before dooku and says you know my powers have doubled since the last time we met count in this opening scene on on yurvana just perfectly encapsulates that um and it's it's fun to go back and look back to anakin in the first season where he's you know absolutely powerful and very full of himself but you see that sort of journey that's materialized over six seasons no yeah, well, and- seven seasons and I loved how, too, they, the episode managed to call back to the fact that Anakin was always just a, kind of a tinkerer and a craftsman um, yeah. when, he, when he improved um, Ahsoka's lightsabers. And that sort of look of wanting her to like them, like it was such a <laughs> like kind of an earnest, authentic, um, you know, sort of human emotion. It was so sweet. And so it's really cool contrast of where he started is just that young boy who just wanted, was very eager to please and sort of him also just being on the cusp of this terrible fall. It's really powerful. That also means that he took them after she left, fixed them and kept them with him knowing he would see her again. That's a wonderful testament of faith right there. So again, just very likable. And we're not quite sure how much time has passed because Ahsoka looks like she's been with uh, the, the Mandalorians for a while. She, she has like the, uh, the markings, the different uh, clothes and you know, time has passed. We just, we're not sure how much. And yeah. Thomas, do you, do you, you're the you know, trivia expert. Do you have any idea how much time has gone on since she left the Jedi Order? Because it's not three days. It's No, I would put it at, uh, at months at best. I would say, and, and I base this a lot based on um, the interaction, that sort of raw emotion she shows with Obi-Wan uh, before they depart. Uh, it, it's clear that the, the emotional sting of her Jedi trial is still pretty raw. And so I would have to believe it's six months or less uh, there. And yeah, but even Revenge of the Sith is the movie itself is tough and you can kind of judge it by its day night cycles, but it's tough to kind of guesstimate exactly how much time passes in the movie. So it's, it's anyone's best guess for this. Um, Agreed. Agreed. Some Star Wars and time can be difficult uh, to figure out, like say Dagobah, but that's beside the point. Let's let's get into some of the legal analysis. We start out with a battle. It's a battle on a bridge, and we have Anakin walk out, just dodging blaster bolts. Who does this fake surrender? And you know, Thomas, as our JAG officer, did you got anything to say about that false surrender and attack? I should have shake my these lessons and apparently uh, not committing perfidy was not among those lessons. Uh, <laughs> so he's, he's right there in the, the doghouse with C-3PO in that moment in return of the Jedi, where he fake surrenders to the stormtroopers before the Ewoks attack. Um, perfidy is, uh, is, is a concept really unique to uh, the law of armed conflict. And uh, the word itself is not a legal term. It, it basically means treachery. Uh, but under the, the law of armed conflict, 
there are certain things that are out of bounds. Uh, and while something like a, a ruse is perfectly, perfectly acceptable. So I, you know, go back to uh, say uh, Captain Rex in the rookies episode where he takes the detached head of a, a commando droid and pretends to be, he holds it up in front of the viewport and pretends to be a, uh, a commando droid and says, Roger, Roger, uh, and gets them in. That would be a ruse. That's acceptable. Uh, and, and trickery like that is acceptable to an extent. But perfidy, uh, one of the, the restrictions, uh, one of the things that counts as perfidy is, is that uh, if you feign uh, negotiation under a flag of truce, truce or an offer of surrender, and you use that in order to kill, injure, or capture an adversary, that's considered perfidy. That's, that's taking treachery, that's taking trickery too far. Uh, beyond the line. That's exactly what Anakin does. He sort of struts out into the middle. He recognizes the problem of that battle. What's grounded to a halt is this tactical droid that's maneuvering and, and ordering the, the droid army around there on your bonnet has not revealed himself. What better way to do that than to trick him into thinking that uh, the great Jedi general Anakin Skywalker is surrendering. And of course the, the tact droid reveals himself. He immediately figures out that it's a ruse, but it's too late because Anakin pulls him forward and then slices his head off uh, and, and turns the tide of the battle single-handedly. So I appreciate Anakin's like tactical thoughtfulness and, and willingness to sort of put himself in the line of fire instead of the 212th and Obi-Wan, but unfortunately it's a, it's a violation of the law of war. Yes, it is. Absolutely. I love that it's called perfidy too. What a cool word um, for that legal concept. And it's such a great scene too, in terms of the um, demonstrating the relationship between Anakin and Obi-Wan too. It's they're still up to their old tricks and they're still up to their old bickering. Um, it's so refreshing and, and welcome to see, but you can tell that Obi-Wan is starting to get a little more skeptical and a little more wary of, of Anakin. At least I, it's what I sort of noticed in that scene. Um, but yeah, it was great to see them interacting together again, despite this was the, the crimes of war. <laughs> Stephen, you make a great point, because that was the scene as he's sitting there on top of the, the cover that Cody and Obi-Wan are hiding behind. And he's like, "Why you guys, you guys could keep hiding down there, or we could go help the people that are under fire here on Urbana. Uh, that scene just encapsulated Anakin, like Revenge of the Sith Anakin, this like, he fully has bought into himself, like his own brand, uh, his own belief in his, his powers. He, you know, he sees himself as more powerful than any other Jedi. And, uh, you know, it's not going to let him, uh, nothing's going to stop him at this point. And it's not really until you see that scene with the lightsabers that you pointed out that you see that, that call back to the old Anakin, which was a great point. I love that, that sort of balance there. Indeed. So we, go back to the ship and we get the call from Ahsoka and they eventually meet. So let's you know, get to the issue of requesting assistance in knocking out an illegitimate leader of Mandalore. Now you could you know, take a couple issues with that, but like how Maul came to power, he's a crime lord. He got, he, he led a coup and they, they're, the Jedi are being asked to help liberate Mandalore. That's a big ask. And 
there isn't like the uh, Republic calling a Senate hearing and they pass a resolution like a force bill authorizing a military action against Mandalore. That that'd be like us looking at pick a country that that's had a a violent revolution and overthrow of an elected government, and we just send in a commando unit to go take out the the new bad guy. We generally don't do that. And if we do, we do it secretly. And uh, frequently we screw it up, which is why we have all these horror stories from the 1960s of us not doing good things with the CIA and all the times that we missed killing Castro. Again, I wouldn't have a problem if we had succeeded, but we tried it, we, we look like clowns. This is a full on, like if Kennedy had sent an air support at the Bay of Pigs, like and not just, hey, we want to go aid the locals and we're gonna give them tactical support. No, it's a full on invasion force, which is not what we did during the Bay of Pigs. The only thing I could think of that, that's similar to this would be uh, Operation Just Cause, which was the capture of Manuel Noriega uh, in Panama, who, again, there was drug dealing and other bad things that we went and captured Noriega. And, you know, we had to comply with the War Powers Act and all that good stuff. But that doesn't, there's nothing like that here. The, we're not even sure what the decision of the Jedi Council was. So all of that as a you know, is this a police action, you know, to, to go in to a sovereign nation and throw out to capture a crime lord? Stephen, uh, your reaction? It certainly didn't seem like they were um, considering the opportunities to use any extradition laws, <laughs> which <laughs> requires sort of uh, cooperation of law enforcement across uh, boundaries, um, so it, it certainly seems like Mandalore wouldn't have cooperated with the request by the Republic to extradite Maul, certainly. So, um, but that's typically or ordinarily the way that um, people try to get people from other, law enforcement tries to get people from other countries if they fled prosecution or something would be through diplomatic channels or, or through cooperation with law enforcement agencies. But they've just kind of jumped right over that process and gone right for the lightsabers and the guns. You love to see it, right? Yeah, that, it, it's efficient. Uh, Thomas, like, again, Jag <laughs> officer reaction to this, like, hey, you guys go capture that crime lord who's go running that country. You guys good? Don't worry about Congress. The, the lawyer in me wanted to see, like, Obi-Wan, if he actually made a transmission, like the transmission to the Jedi Council and the debate, however short it may have been about the, the, uh, ramifications legal and otherwise to, to head, you know, sending force in the star Wars fan in me wanted exactly what happened, uh, which is Obi-Wan. I, I don't think there was a decision by the Jedi council because I think, I, you know, what other reason are they splitting the 501st for uh, if, if there was authorization to send an actual battle group in, this was an ad hoc decision that I think Obi-Wan bought into in part, and it's just my my interpretation of it, but in part because I think he he harbors some lingering uh, 
responsibility for how Ahsoka was treated. And, and now that she's back and she clearly has a cause that's not only important to her, but important to the Republic. Um, I, I think he wants to jump on board that. And, and let's not forget that at the end of season five, uh, the Republic and, and really the Jedi Council specifically rejected taking action at Mandalore. Uh, Maul had swept in. Uh, the prime minister in this episode that we see, Almec, was sitting in a jail cell having started up a corruption ring on Mandalore using his governmental uh, authority to, to basically bring in this, uh, this toxic chemical that they were cutting tea with. And kids were getting sick left and right. Uh, there were Mandalorian children that were uh, getting very ill from this guy's action. Well, Maul busts him out of prison and like a good crime lord, installs him as he, uh, as he pulls uh, Satine out of power. And so the, the Jedi Council looked at that and said, they said, oh, we're not going to send anybody. You know, Mandalore's independent. It always has been. We've had this fragile truce with this system. We're not going to send anybody. So there was certainly no, no uh, governmental authorization for war by executive power, sort of like, uh, you know, the, the, uh, what we're operating under now to some extent, uh, you know, in some extension, some instances, just you see these extensions off of uh, the AUMF, the authorization for use of military force that got us into Iraq and Afghanistan. You don't even have Palpatine taking unilateral action here. This is just like Anakin and Obi-Wan putting their heads together and being like, well, let's cut the red tape and just give Captain Rex a little promotion and a battle group of his own <laughs> to go in. And, uh, and, and so it creates problems. I, you know, one of those issues is Ahsoka has no status. She's not a military commander anymore. If you recall at the end of her Jedi trial, she was stripped of her rank and status in the Grand Army of the Republic. And Obi-Wan reminds us of that in this episode. He's like, you're, you're not a, you have no privileges within the army anymore. And that's, that's why you get the work around with Rex. But she's sent in as this advisor, which is its own sort of legal conundrum, because effectively right now she's a civilian that's now been armed by Anakin. <laughs> and uh, she's got no military authority. Uh, arguably, her direct participation in hostilities as, as they land on Mandalore is going to strip her of any, any protections as a civilian. And, you know, arguably she's sort of like a a contractor accompanying the force. We don't see a lot of those contractors doing actual fighting in the real world, but um, you know, she's putting herself at, at risk here of uh, being captured and, and not being subject or not being able to take benefit to certain protective provisions under the law of war, you know, stuff like POW protections and things like that. It, it, it's like an inverse of the U.S. participation in Vietnam in the 1950s and early 60s, that we would have advisors working with the Vietnamese and fighting the communists. Okay. And then the communists also had jetpacks. Yeah. <laughs> this is the reverse of that, of, of a, like the freedom fighter advising the U.S. military in the raid on the opposite country. That's weird. And I'm not, I'm sure there's some historical example that I can't think of, you know, off the cuff, but that's not normally how we do that. I mean, it's one thing to have like, uh, like a guide, 
you know, but it's, it's some, this is like a completely different beast that we're used to historically, unless there's some, you know, bunch of black ops things I don't know about because we don't teach that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a secret because it was successful. Uh, Thomas, are you, is this ringing any bells for you? Well, the U.S. is very careful, like, for for pure contractors, pure civilian contractors. So I'm not talking about, say, a uh, a governmental entity that that might be paired, or like an OGA, and other gov governmental agency that might be paired um, with a combat unit. So something like a, a CIA team or something like that. Ahsoka doesn't fit that bill. She looks more like a, a traditional uh, contractor, and the U.S. military is very clear. Uh, in its boundaries. We're not contracting folks to come in and, and fight or advise. Like we, we have all those capabilities. The Grand Army of the Republic has those capabilities. Uh, she's really sort of carved out a role because of who she is, not because she has, well, she does have some special knowledge in terms of her, her force skills. Um, but those rules are in place because we don't want to look like we're hiring folks to do the fighting for us. So while you'll see contractors perform certain like self-defense functions um, and, and certain sort of, uh, they can sometimes perform search and rescue functions, uh, you're not gonna see contractors out there, at least not those by the US, that are out there doing foot patrols or out there leading an infantry unit uh, into tactical operations. Yeah, it's really weird because there aren't good historical comparisons, and this is everything we try to avoid. So it's, but hey, it's an awesome fight scene. So like we, we're okay with it. But it's it, it's just there isn't a good allegory to our legal system and how we use military forces in combat to effectively overthrow a government and capture a leader which we only have a handful of experiences doing. So it's, it's pretty wild. And what I love is that in spite of how notorious her case was and, and her exit from the Jedi Order, certainly not all of the details of her story would have filtered down to, to the average clone private. But yet as she walks through the, the hallways of the Star Destroyer, she's getting salutes left and right. She's getting salutes, if you, if you pay attention to the armor, from clones that were not in the 501st, so uh, clones from Obi-Wan's unit, the 212th, who may have never even fought a, beside her, uh, it, it, much less fought beside her extensively. Yet the, the stories of her sacrifice and her dedication to the clones uh, and to the cause are so pervasive that that's what overrides, that's what those clones see. And, and as she sort of makes her amazing descent from uh, the, the gunship down to the surface of of Sundari on Mandalore, you see her repeatedly referred to as commander and not just Ahsoka or ma'am or, you know, whatever name you want to call her. Yeah, she earned it and they're not going to forget that anytime soon. So it's just, it's one of those uh, qualities of loyalty. And yeah, like again, it's the battlefield story of somebody who's achieved hero status. And if only we could see something like that in live action, because we just haven't, uh, we don't get that level of jumping 
and force abilities in, in live action, probably because it'd be hard to pull off. But uh, uh, I digress. Well, let's let's talk about Maul. There's somebody who really should have an arrest warrant out for himself. You know, that's uh, the, the RICO violations are colossal. And for those who aren't familiar with RICO, it's the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act. The ultimate uh, elements are uh, conduct of an enterprise through a pattern of racketeering activity. Yeah, we got that. Spice stealing, you know, it's a, it's a, like, would be a category one drug, you know, in, in our world. Uh, we, we have murder, uh, we have murder for hire, we have assassinations, we have all of the activity of, of, uh, him being a crime lord, including a discussion where he says, we'll be lords, crime lords, again, like that's pretty over the top bad guy level. Uh, so yeah, there's no question that, that he, there should be an arrest warrant for him, but who issued it? Did the Jedi Council issue an arrest warrant? Did some judge on Coruscant, you know, issue one for him? Is this like citizen's arrest pushed to the limit? It is really weird, and, and you know, Stephen, you're smiling and nodding your head. What, what's your thoughts on this? All, all those things you listed um, would be um, certainly enough to um, amount to probable cause, <laughs> at least probable cause. Um, any judge would have issued uh, an, a warrant for the arrest of um, of Maul, given the conduct. Um, that he's engaged in. And and also, I just, I, I'm thinking back to the previous episode, or maybe two episodes ago, where, um, where uh, the Pikes sort of admitted or talked about how um, Maul is pitting the, the uh, arms of the Shadow Collective against each other. And that's how he runs a criminal organization. It just really makes it very, very clear the, the tentacles of, of his criminal enterprise have reached really far and are so deeply um, embedded into these cultures. I think he's, he's such a great villain and I love that um, the Clone Wars took him into this sort of mafia gang, crime lord um, type villain, not just a sort of evil sorcerer villain. That and, you know, he excels at it. You know, by the time we see him in Solo, he's still kicking in that, and a couple years later, by the time of Rebels, he's broken, and you know the the old man who's beat up. So, what knocks him out? Uh, and and hopefully we get that story of what happens where he loses his criminal enterprise. But there there definitely should be an arrest warrant for this man. And but is that enough to? authorized military action because that's taken a police action to a whole new level and thomas i mean we've we went after guys who you know were responsible for 9-11 and other acts of terrorism you know when we had soldiers read people miranda rights out in the field do, do you have any thoughts on whether it's posse comitatus or you know, again we, we have the military here being depicted and arguably a giant police action that's an invasion of another planet. I, th I think they see it clearly for what it is when they're discussing the potential uh, joint operation 
Uh, Bo-Katan doesn't mince words. She, you know, Obi-Wan mentions that they'll be breaking treaties that are 100 years old. Uh, and they talk about it in terms of a, an act of war. I mean, that's, that's what this is. This isn't uh, U.S. Special Forces sending assistance or, or, you know, providing some advisory capacity to the folks going after, uh, you know, some drug lord in, in South America. This is a full-on, uh, you know, invasion force on the planet, multiple Star Destroyers, uh, you know, hundreds of clone troopers, and at least a former Jedi uh, leading them into battle. And so I, th I think they recognize exactly the stakes here, which is why uh, it's a no-fail mission. I mean, uh, you know, Obi-Wan's sort of last words are, maybe don't try to kill him because he'll probably come back from that, but capture him, make sure you capture him. I mean, this is, uh, this is one where if you swing and miss on this operation because of uh, what you've done and the level of force that you've used, and really because of Mandalore's history as Mandalore, you're going to have another war on your hands. Bo-Katan realizes that as do Anakin and Obi-Wan, which is why I think they swing with such a, a heavy fist. <laughs> and there's not really a second thought to, to letting Ahsoka lead them into battle. Um, I have to say, if, if Maul was playing like Rico Bingo, he would have hit all of them. Because, you know, I'm looking at the list of crimes that constitute Rico, uh, you know, murder, kidnapping, robbery, embezzlement, drug trafficking, and even copyright infringement. And I'm pretty sure he's done all of the, I'm pretty sure on some level he's copyright, he's infringing on somebody's copyright, uh, you know, probably some Mandalorian company or something like that. <laughs> it's the fact that they have to put his colors on the armor. There could be something there. There's like some, some dilution taking place maybe. It's, uh, again, I'm not the IP guy, but uh, yeah, there are all kinds of red flags here. It's red as a lightsaber. It's, uh, there's a lot happening. Absolutely a lot happening. Now, Stephen, buddy, let's talk about the bailment of Ahsoka's lightsabers. And weren't they green originally? Why are they blue now? Yeah. That that was one thing about this episode that I found a little troubling. Um, I because they've gone to such lengths to to talk to teach us that the kyber crystals in a Jedi's lightsaber are an intensely personal connection that the crystals choose the Jedi, and we know that Ahsoka got her her crystals from Elam, um, just like every other Jedi. And so it, apparently at some point that those crystals called to her and she chose them or they chose her. Um, and then Anakin just kind of like switches them out for blue lightsaber <laughs> crystals, which I guess is I mean, his, his lightsaber is blue, so I think maybe he thinks it's better or something, but it seemed so strange. I'm, I'm not quite sure I understand the, the narrative take on that, other than um, then it was just sort of a way for him to show that they were still connected and that he wanted to be a part of her life, maybe, and a part of her, um, you know, her future but um, symbolically at least with the blue um, crystals, but it, but it did strike me as a little odd and I, I'm, I'm not sure what the, what the canon answer to that is about um, having alien crystals in, in your um, lightsabers. But in any event, it struck me that, um, that Anakin had, as we've been talking about before, Anakin had been 
kind of holding on to Ahsoka's lightsabers for her, which um, could create the situation that's legally called a bailment. It's where chattel or personal property is left in the care of, of someone else. And if it's a situation like if you go on vacation and you want to have someone hang on to your valuables for your for you while you're traveling that's called a gratuitous bailment where it's a um, where you're entrusting your personal property for some with someone for your own benefit you the bailor are giving your property to the bailee to hang on to it for you and so that's not exactly what happened here because ahsoka's lightsabers were lost um, they were mislaid uh, during her pursuit over the course of a couple episodes at the end of season five. Um, so at some point, Anakin found her lost lightsabers and didn't get a chance to return them to her before she, she left, but he kept them for her. So he became sort of a quasi Bailey. Um, he has, he would have in that case, this sort of possessory title to them, which would be um, good against everyone else except for Ahsoka. So in other words, he kind of, he has a duty to, take due care to keep them um, safe for her until she, um, the original owner returns. And in fact, he says his line in the, in the show is, I took care of them, they're good as new, maybe a little better. Um, but um, by a little better, of course, he meant that he replaced the kyber crystals in them. Um, and she seemed pleased with that. Um, it didn't seem to strike her as, as bad or anything. She seemed happy. But it, what if she were angry with Anakin about changing the crystals? What if she were attached to the green ones in some way? Um, this would trigger a concept that I had to really dig deep back into my bar review materials for. It's called accession, which is the addition of value to bailed property by the expenditure of labor or additional new materials. Um, and in California, it's governed by statutes. It started the civil code section 1025. And because Anakin acted in good faith, he improved them for her benefit, not his own. Um, he gets sort of the benefit of the doubt. He's not really liable for this, but if Ahsoka were to sue, she could have, um, under the law, she could be entitled to um, conversion damages, which is the value of the original lightsabers plus any consequential damages she she suffered. Or she could sue for replevin, which would just be to regain um, possessory control over the lightsabers and presumably over the crystals that were part of the original um, construction. So I just thought it was interesting how um, he was sort of there to quote unquote, take care of them. And yet he totally, like I said, tinkered with them like he's want to do when he, uh, when he was a kid. So I thought it was interesting. I would add that since they were lost and I don't remember everything that happened, maybe the original crystals had been stolen. Like he found the lightsabers, but not the oh, crystals. So yeah. he, he had to replace the crystals because they were gone. I had not considered that. I suppose those would be the kind of the most valuable um, parts of the uh, of the lightsaber. And of course, this is during the I suppose during the ramp up to the um, right. This is during the ramp up to to the creation of the Death Star. So the Empire is paying probably top dollar for any Kylo crystals they anyone finds. I hadn't considered that because they they had the plans by the end of. Um... You know, Attack of the Clones, so or at least the first version of the plan. So yeah. maybe maybe that started someplace, and well, but there's probably a black market for Kyber crystals. And I totally. remember, uh, like, and uh, you know, as as our favorite 
as Hondo, you know, initially tried stealing kyber crystals as well, maybe, I mean, that's evidence of a market for them. Yeah. The, the other thought that I had is we know that kyber crystals color can be uh, changed. We know it because Anakin bled, you can bleed a kyber crystal and that's how you get a, a red saber. Uh, likewise, Ahsoka, by the time of Rebels, has white lightsabers, uh, those crystals famously being taken from uh, an Inquisitor, the Six Brothers uh, sabers. And which were red and she sort of healed the crystals uh, back from their fractured state to, uh, to restore to that white color. So it's possible that Anakin is powerful enough that he sort of bent these kyber crystals. Because I, I guess my, my issue with swapping them out is the whole concept of a, a kyber is that, at least for the Jedi and, and the lightsabers, that it's bonded, the two are bonded. I mean, you know, you, you have that amazing arc from season four or five uh, with the younglings that go on the, the crystal hunt on Ilum with Yoda. And it's just this very sacred uh, task that they have to complete. And so it's, I guess it's possible that she could bond with a new pair of crystals. The idea that Anakin would find a pair that <laughs> would, would happen to just, you know, bond with her. I, you know, I don't know if that stretches things, but that seems like a really good question for the, uh, the Clone Wars download. I might submit something along those lines if I can shrink it down to something concise, see if they'll answer it. Yeah, there was something about it that I found sort of troubling, but I don't know. It, it's, I, I like the idea that they were stolen, that maybe he um, you know, replaced them. Maybe he did change them. That's so interesting too. I just, after playing Jedi Fallen Order too, where you go through, not, you know, not to spoiler too much, but you do go through the process. You see the Jedi's process of hearing the crystal call within the caves of Ilum and, um, and how it's so personal. And there's just that tiny little crystal that beckons to you from across all those gaps that are so hard to cross but um but yeah it, it was it was interesting to me the the story direction that took but it made for a great um great visual of her with those two anakin color lightsabers um landing on um mandalore the way she did it was so powerful no again attack of the clones obi-wan and anakin don't have lightsabers when the jedi come in and they're like given replacement lightsabers right off the bat and sure, just as a baseball player would have his or her preferred baseball bat, maybe you could just use any bat, and like that's it, like maybe they bond to it or, or not. Uh, but again, it does again like that goes to Force Awakens and you know uh, Luke's lightsaber calling to Ray. So again, it it does raise interesting questions of you know like them being special. Or they did Anakin just like prepare them for her if they were replaced, or or maybe somehow in improving the lightsabers, the green turned blue. I mean, like that it's maybe yeah. something in the emitter that changed. It's uh, it's yeah, it's it's a really weird question. Yeah. And like all things in Star Wars too, it's just kind of the force is the answer. <laughs> it's whatever serves the narrative. Um, and I did think it was a really powerful thing for them character wise for him to be so um, 
sort of vulnerable to to present those lightsabers that he had personalized for her in that way um, and that she accepted them after everything that they'd been through it was a really really powerful um, character moment and you know sort of all these technical details fall away when you when you think of that um, that beautiful um, moment that they shared so but that was uh, that was one of my favorite parts of the episode I, that that moment between them was so nice was so nicely drawn well, that and, and well analyzed. I, it does make me wonder why do some Jedi get called to two crystals and some just to one? But Thomas, you got anything for us, buddy? You're the you're the you're innate you're innate badass level. <laughs> if you're badass enough to handle two lightsabers, you get called to two crystals. <laughs> or if if you're like Petro in that episode, the the young boy. Uh, Padawan that's uh, out ahead of all of his peers in that uh, that episode of the Clone Wars where they, they go for the crystal search. Uh, if you're fast enough, maybe you can collect two that are calling for you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's again, she has two and again, kind of that short sword and long sword kind of set up. I'm not sure the proper names for them, but it's, uh, I, I want to say Catan for some reason. I don't know why, but it's, you know, it's fun. And that fight scene is wonderful. And this highlights uh, part of the reason why did Palpatine leave Maul alive? Was Palpatine's plan to divide Obi-Wan and Anakin in order to, you know, tempt Anakin and hoping that Obi-Wan would get called to Mandalore and thus separate the two of them? Or is this just luck that Maul's there and he has his vendetta against Obi-Wan? And uh, Stephen, do you wanna, do you got something, thoughts on this? I, I don't put anything past um, Emperor Palpatine at this point after um, the rise of Skywalker. I think he could certainly have had that foresight to be able to to um, leave Maul alive so that he could um, distract the Jedi from um, the darkness that was growing in Anakin. Um, I certainly think that's plausible. It's a great point. He, he tells Maul as he's defeated there on Mandalore that he has plans for him because he Maul is preparing to be killed like his brother Savage. And I can't believe this isn't covered in the show, but after that Maul is locked in, in the spire, uh, this prison on Stygian prime that we eventually see in rebels where Luminara and Dooley is like her remains are used to, to draw Jedi in. And I can't believe that Palpatine's plan is to just lock him and keep him in a prison. Like, He's too diabolical for that. So I think he knew full well that he was going to get broken out of there and go back to his criminal ways. And Stephen, I think, and, and Josh, I think you guys are exactly right that um, he knew that Maul had this singular obsession with Obi-Wan. I mean, that was why he was building this criminal empire in the first place. And, you know, what better way to, to sort of draw Obi-Wan away from Anakin than to throw that line or allow that line to be cast back in the water, knowing that, uh, you know, Obi-Wan's been tempted to, to go and try to defeat Maul once, he's probably likely to do it again because he recognizes the, the threat that Maul poses. And he's probably got that, that, you know, part of him inside that wants some vengeance for Satine. 
and uh, you see in the beginning of this episode, it like crystallizes what uh, the, the diabolical nature of Order 66, because the separatists who have been beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten are still able to launch this massive galaxy-wide offensive that's done for one reason, and that's to spread the remaining members of the Jedi Order and really the Jedi Council out to the far reaches of the galaxy so that uh, you know they're more vulnerable. Uh, somebody like Anakin has no support uh, there back at home, and the plans fall into place as they should. There's a lot there, Scott. The, one of the things that well, I want to say just seemed really selfish of Ahsoka was the, the you know, the, there's the attack on Coruscant and she's snotty about the, milit the, the Grand Army of the Republic having to go defend the Capitol and the Chancellor. It's like, what the hell? It's like you're you're asking them to go on a side mission to Mandalore and start a second war. So Anakin was right in saying like we kind of need to finish the first one. Not an unreasonable position, but this would be like Pearl Harbor happening, and uh, you know another country being upset. Like, what are you going to do to help us in in Europe? Uh, what are you going to do about Len Lease? You guys are all of a sudden distracted. It's like screw you, we're busy. We just got attacked right at the Capitol. This would be uh, like, like an assault on Washington DC during the Civil War. Like we were armed to the teeth in DC. Part of the reason why it wasn't attacked because they would have been crushed. But the fact she had attitude just rubbed me the wrong way because that's just, it's like she has friends on Coruscant. Why is she being snotty about the military having to do its job to protect the people of Coruscant? And did either yeah. one of you have that reaction? Yeah, I sort of took it as, um, you know, as like so many things in Star Wars, the, the galactic nature of the war really just um, uh, reflects the interpersonal connections that are going on. And to me, um, it seemed to me that she was you know, in many ways, Anakin and, and Obi-Wan are kind of like older brothers, uncles, parents, where she, um, and she's always struggled, I, I would, I sense for their kind of attention against their commitment and their duty to the Republic. And I, th I think that maybe she also just senses this weird connection between Anakin and the Emperor. And she's not really jealous of it, I guess, but she's wary of it and concerned about it and you know on the one hand she's like I'm right here I need your help why aren't you helping me why are you going to them um, and th th I think that that was just a way of illustrating the gulf that still exists between them as a family um, even though they've had this reunion um, that was so sort of bittersweet it's a reunion and also a goodbye yeah and I, I agree with that I, I did not have that same sort of negative reaction. I, I thought there were two aspects that stood out to me about Ahsoka's response. One, I think she was throwing it, uh, throwing Obi-Wan's perceived uh, betrayal of her uh, at her Jedi trial right back in his face. Uh, he's, don't forget that despite speaking up for Ahsoka at the Jedi Council and, and asking the members to rally to her defense, 
he said nothing as Mace Windu, as Plo Koon, as Yoda uh, spoke out against her and leveled accusations that, that Obi-Wan didn't personally believe. He said not one word. And if you, if you doubt her, uh, her attitude and her perception of that, just a few minutes later in the episode, she's sitting locked in a Republic jail cell and she, she's talking with Padme, who's now her defense counsel. And she says, everyone's abandoned me except for Anakin. And she ties that right back in, in this episode. And she says, you're the only one that's ever stood by my side or that who's been by my side, something to that effect. Uh, so she, she clearly feels some animosity toward, toward Obi-Wan. Never mind you that, that she didn't directly acknowledge him until that very moment. Uh, she didn't say hello to him. She's sort of interacted with Anakin and Anakin alone up to this point. So I think that's a little bit of, of uh, sort of twisting the knife uh, of Obi-Wan's guilt. I also think that her, her experience with the Martez sisters, as Stephen pointed out, was a really powerful one. I think it made her and it crystallized this view in her that her past perception of the war as a, a, a soldier in it uh, doesn't reflect the reality of what the the citizens of the the galaxy, the actual downtrodden folks that need to be protected, are seeing. What this war has become, it may have started out as a way to protect the average citizen, but that's not what it's become at this point. At this point, the Jedi are are and and really by extension the clones, uh, and the the Senate are are on this like vicious cycle where the war perpetuates itself, and. Uh, a military action rushing back to Coruscant isn't to protect the people. It's to, to protect a valuable military asset, a val, you know, a high value target. It's to protect the chancellor. And I, you know, I would suggest that the chancellor has intentionally m maneuvered himself uh, to a position of such importance that they have to rush back and protect him. They don't know at this point standing there in the star destroyer that he's been kidnapped, but there's the chance he could be. And it's not like Valorum back in the days of the Phantom Menace where he's sort of, you know, he has some power, but he's not this central figure to the war effort and to the Republic itself. And that's sort of the genius in, in Palpatine's whole plan. He knew the position that he held. He knew the reaction that the Republic and the Jedi Order would have uh, if Coruscant got attacked. And it wasn't because the people were in danger. Yeah, they clearly should have a no real continuity of government uh, plan if they if everything hangs on the chancellor surviving. So that's a problem. And you don't have a high value target out in the open. And who, I'm not sure if there's a vice chancellor, but that individual should be in an undisclosed location. Uh, ready to survive in case there's a hit. So they, they need to have that continuity plan. And that doesn't seem to be a thing uh, here. It's all the chips are on the table for Palpatine, which was by design from Palpatine. So there's that. Uh, but yeah, it's many issues to unpack there. I, yeah, it's just lot to unpack there. So with that, we have this cinematic uh, experience. We are marching towards the end of the Clone Wars and uh, probably will feel a desire to watch Revenge of the Sith after this. So <laughs> there's uh, 
Uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of good there. I'm uh, I'm hoping they ignore one of the books and Ventress survives because I really want to do a mock trial for her because what a complex character who goes from bad guy to bounty hunter and it'd be fun to do a war crimes trial for her because she does change sides granted to her own side but that would be I, I have my rule with mock trials the character has to be alive and if if the if the animated series ignores the book and she survives I'm fine doing it, but we have to get there. <laughs> so, uh, Thomas, I mean, Stephen, you're you're nodding and smiling. You you have a thought on that? I would watch or listen to a mock trial of Ventress so hard. I love that <laughs> character, and especially if it was a, a mock trial panel or something. If we had a Ventress cosplayer, they're they're so great, um, and I love to see them at conventions. They're so fun. I think, yeah, it would be fun. Uh, Thomas, your thoughts? She's a fascinating character to look at from that aspect, and especially in light, if, if you take the rest of Dark Disciple, the book you're talking about, and, and uh, kind of consider her the assistance that she offered the Republic. How do you balance that against? Does it negate the jury? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what does that do for her? Uh, do, do you look at, you know, does she have a, uh, any mitigation or extenuation in terms of the awful past that she suffered at the hands of Dooku and just her general childhood and upbringing, that entire awfulness. And if you haven't read uh, the uh, the Dooku book, the one that was written as a screenplay, uh, that gives some great insight into her, uh, her background and her upbringing as well. Yeah, because she rightly wants to kill Dooku and sure that's attempted murder and there's all kinds of issues with that but again that'd be fun i mean going from her like raiding a facility and before killing a clone like kisses him and then impales him with a lightsaber all of that's just super messed up and uh what a wickedly complex character that would be fun to put on trial so i'm hoping that they ignore a book and that we see her survive. But that's me, and uh, I've been wrong before. But anyway, uh, wanna uh, thank everyone for tuning in, and won't we just talk about where we can each be found. So I managed the Legal Geeks uh, Twitter, so it's at the Legal Geeks. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram with at the Legal Geeks. My personal Twitter is at Bowtie Law. Uh, Steven, where can folks find you? You can find me on Twitter at SteveVenture, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-U-R-E. -E -E, um, and I hope to see you there. And Thomas. You can find me and my incredibly creative Twitter handle at Thomas L. That's L as in Lee Harper. Fantastic. So check us out on Patreon. You could be our first patron. So bless. Yes, we do have extra content there recorded all kinds of stuff on The Boys and Watchmen and check it out. Uh, we also have some behind the scenes of uh, the mock trial uh, witness prep for General Organa and Poe Dameron from our uh, court martial from a couple years ago. So how we prepped people for that. You can hear me 
really lay into both on cross-examination. And, and I do have to admit, I was so grueling on cross that our wonderful cosplayer who played uh, Leia went and did additional homework because I might have scared her because I, I, was, I went at her with a fire axe. And because um, that's how I cross. Um, so anyway, uh, I wanted her prepared. So if I went like totally relaxed and gentle, that's not a way you prepare a witness. You know, you, you come out, uh, you know, hot with all guns blazing so they could see what a hot, hot uh, uh, cross is like. So that way they can be ready for anything. But that's and, and Rachel came out of it channeling pure Carrie Fisher. I mean, she was Leia. <laughs> she, she was so good. Uh, but yeah, the look on her face on the video was like, whoa, he seemed nice. What happened? So yeah, you, you can hear that. You could totally hear that. And uh, all kinds of fun stuff. So with that, everyone keep sheltering in place, stay safe, stay healthy, and hopefully we'll see you either at Denver Pop Culture Con in November. I'm hoping that one happens. Uh, my heart of hearts, I'm really hoping Star Wars Celebration happens, but it's the end of August and that's, anything can happen. So uh, don't be sad if it's canceled, there'll be something online. Uh, but I really do hope that that one does happen because it'd be great to see everybody in person. Because after all the sheltering in place, it'd kind of be nice to actually see people again. So everyone stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you soon.